0: This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is David Enrich, and he is the finance editor at the New York Times. Previously, he was a journalist at the Wall Street Journal. Last time we spoke with David, it was when his new book, The Spider Network, came out. That was back in 2018, all about LIBOR manipulation. His new book is Dark Towers. It's all about Deutsche Bank and how what was once a sleepy backwater German bank okay, they also helped fund the Holocaust and the Nazi war machine, but how they ended up having global aspirations in the 90s and 2000s, briefly becoming the biggest bank in the world before an epic collapse. David is a really interesting investigative journalist. He does a wonderful job fleshing out the characters in his book who are all real people. This isn't Fiction. He is telling a story about what happened, how it happened, and why. And he had access to a treasure trove of documents and emails in the Deutsche Bank story. It's just utterly, utterly compelling. If you're at all interested in stories of malfeasance at giant financial institutions, this is up there with When Genius Failed and other such issues. Only this one involves criminality, not bad trading decisions. So with no further ado, my conversation with the New York Times, David Enrich. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is David Enrich. He is the finance editor at the New York Times. Previously, he was an investigative journalist at the Wall Street Journal. He is the author of several books, most recently, Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an epic trail of destruction. Previously, he wrote The Spider Network, a book about the LIBOR manipulation. David Enrich, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me, Barry. So we had you on a couple of years ago to discuss The Spider Network, which I thought was a fascinating tale. It, it read like a spy novel almost. And a very short period of time elapsed between that book and Dark Towers. Obviously, there's some overlap with LIBOR and Deutsche Bank. But why so quick between the two books? How did the new one come about?
1: Well, why so quick is the same question I've gotten from a number of people, including my wife. (laughs) And you know the reality is, when you've got a good idea for a book, they don't come around that often, at least not for me. And so you kind of jump at it, at the opportunity while you can. And in this case, I mean, I've been obsessing about Deutsche Bank for really the better part of a decade. Um, Back, I'd been working with the Wall Street Journal in London from 2010 to 2016. And during that period, I was covering banking and finance. And, you know, the biggest, most troubled bank at that time was Deutsche Bank. And it was was pretty technical. And... industry-specific story it was not something that captured much public imagination, I don't think, outside of the finance world. But with the election of Donald Trump, and given his very close ties to Deutsche Bank over a long period of time, the story kind of started becoming a much more palatable story for the general public. And I felt like I was in a really good position to tell that. So I, you know, just grabbed the opportunity while I could. And I do wish, in hindsight, I had uh it's hard writing a book, you know, It takes a lot of time and it's this labor of love, but also this object of complete and total obsession. And I've got little kids, and so it was it was not the easiest couple of years doing this.
0: Especially when you're writing about a topic that is changing in real time, ongoing investigations, ongoing stock price fluctuation. How did you deal with the fact that this story, Continued past when you put your pen down?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I made a decision pretty early on in consultation with my publisher that this was not going to be a book that told you everything in the world about Deutsche Bank and tried to break a lot of news about the current ongoing kind of reorganizations of the bank and restructurings and things like that. There was, it was going to be, and you know, as you probably know, like 80% of the book, maybe 70% of the book is this story of how Deutsche Bank grew from this provincial, really German-focused bank into this global juggernaut and then into this epic disaster. And so much less of the book is spent focusing on the past, basically from the 2016 period, 2017 period onward, where the bank has been in this pretty uh hardcore cleanup mode. And so I, I had the liberty of just kind of drawing a line basically around the time that, or shortly after the time that uh the bank's leadership changed for, you know, the 18th time. And, uh and so I, I really, that made it a lot easier to kind of put blinders on. Obviously I focused very, or I paid a lot of attention to what was going on with the various reorganizations and, the new leadership, and I spent a lot of time talking to people who were involved in that. But it was, I was not particularly worried about every little incremental twist and turn as it related to the bank and its financials. I was much more interested, frankly, in in terms of things that were moving. Uh, you know, as I was writing, as it related to investigations on money laundering and Donald Trump. And so I spent, I did spend a lot of time both. In the book, and also doing reporting and writing for the new york Times uh, on those kind of live topics the other things that were much more coming out of Germany where i you know just in addition to not thinking it was that core to the narrative in the book, I also just simply wasn't as well sourced so um I, I kind of just narrowed my field of vision a little bit, which I think was is was a little bit of a gamble, and I think it'll frankly it'll probably make the book a little you know, less satisfying in some ways to a, a certain um slice of the world that is really obsessed with understanding where the bank currently is. Uh but I think for the vast majority of readers, it's a pretty good look at how the bank and how how the bank got into so much trouble and how big companies in general get into so much trouble. And the kind of decisions and incentives that are set up along the way that really lead down this pretty disastrous path. And to me, Deutsche Bank is just this classic case study and how not only how not to run a business but the perils of growing too fast and incentivizing people to essentially make just very bad decisions over and over
0: again so you hit on exactly a question i was going to ask later but i might as well ask it now when we look at some of the biggest disasters of the past decade whether it was the collapse of WeWork's or all the trouble That Uber got into or go back to Lehman Brothers, Deutsche Bank did many of the same things. Disregard for legality, incentivizing people for profits regardless of the consequences. Effectively, short-term versus long-term greedy. Is that a fair assessment of Deutsche Bank?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that the bank... And I think it's actually deeper than that in in some ways. I mean, banks are obviously kind of peculiar beasts, right? I mean, they are entrusted with essentially operating the economy to a large extent for the entire world. And so unlike an Uber or a WeWork, which is important in its own right and has kind of transformed the way we live or work, it's banks occupy this very special role at the heart of the financial system and therefore at the heart of – the economy. And to me, there's one of the most important shifts that's taken place in global finance in the past, I don't know, 30 years at this point, I guess, is the transition from banks being viewed as these kind of profitable but not egregiously profitable. They're really, um, they've been much more like public utilities and there to kind of grease the, the gears of the global economy. And this transition that took place, it coincides largely with the large, so big Wall Street firms Going from private partnerships into publicly traded companies and then later becoming banks, uh, toward these just ridiculously fat profit margins has been, it's been very destructive for the banks themselves in many cases, but it's also been very destructive for the economy and for the financial system, I think. And so Deutsche Bank's transition from being this, you know, pretty plain vanilla German lender that was primarily focused on helping big German companies spread their wings internationally and, to a lesser extent, helping non-German companies enter the German or European markets. And, you know, those were very steady businesses and very important businesses. And Deutsche Bank, as a result of that, played a leading role in, you know, the development of railroads in the 19th and early 20th centuries. It played a leading role in the reconstruction, redevelopment of Europe after World War II and going out into the mid nineties and as the Iron Curtain fell, it played, the bank played a, a leading role in helping to globalize the economy and knock down bar- unhealthy barriers to uh, economic development in some countries. And it was a, the bank's CEO in up until the late nineteen eighties was a leading advocate of forgiving third world debts, for example. And so it was a bank that occupied this role, of not only you know, providing banking services, but was it viewed its role as kind of essential and intertwined with the fate of Germany and the fate of Europe. And that shifted very dramatically starting in the mid nineteen nineties when the bank got a taste for Wall Street and it decided that it was going to prioritize short term profits above everything else. And, you know, I think we'll probably get into this later, but that led to a complete transformation of the bank's culture and one where literally the only thing you were supposed to look at when deciding whether to do a certain transaction or to bring on a certain client or make certain investments as a business was what will the impact of this decision be on our profits this quarter or maybe this year? There's no consideration to what will this do to our reputation? What will this do to our business five years from now? Is this sustainable? Is this smart? And, You know, that that kind of just blinders on short-term decision-making has very anticipatable consequences. And in a business like banking that is highly levered, the seriousness, the gravity of those mistakes is dramatically amplified.
0: To say the very least, removing the risk from the risk-reward analysis naturally leads to certain outcomes. So let's talk a little bit about that rise and fall we discussed earlier. In the 1980s and 90s, Deutsche Bank was a a sleepy regional bank in Germany. 29% of its profits came from investing banking. And once this transformation and embrace of derivatives and aggressive risk and trading and leverage took place, That shot up to 85% a year later. How how did this happen, and and how did it change the culture at Deutsche Bank?
1: Well, and those are kind of two very related questions. And and the the way it happened is that starting in the mid-1990s, the bank's leaders saw that the big American banks were making a tremendous amount of money on Wall Street and also making a tremendous amount of money and kind of encroaching on the turf of European banks, like Deutsche Bank, and Goldman Sachs famously won a big deal taking Deutsche Telekom private. And that, that was a kind of assignment that had traditionally gone to the hometown banks, or at least European banks. And instead, Deutsche Bank got a role in that deal, but Goldman Sachs is the lead And that was a huge wake-up call to Deutsche Bank executives that, you know, Wall Street was coming to invade their turf. Maybe it's time for them to go invade Wall Street's turf. And so starting in 1995, the bank went on this epic hiring spree where it brought in initially a small group of salesmen and traders from Merrill Lynch and basically gave them a blank check to hire as many people as they could. And they went on to hire thousands of people from the big Wall Street firms of the time, uh, very, very quickly. And that very quickly transformed or began to transform the culture from an institution that was primarily a German one to one that was much more international. And the locus of power started to shift slowly but surely from Frankfurt and Berlin to London and to a lesser extent, New York. And even with spending billions of dollars, hiring thousands of People in this very fast manner. The bank got much bigger, especially in derivatives. But it still was kind of a second tier, maybe even third tier player on Wall Street and in many other many markets around the world. So, in the late 1990s, so a few years after they started this expansion, the bank decided that it really needed to double down on this strategy. And so they went shopping for a big Wall Street firm to buy. And the you know they were looking at the likes of Merrill Lynch. Lehman Brothers, uh, and Banker's Trust, which at the time was kind of one of the most swashbuckling firms on Wall Street. It was in pretty serious financial trouble because of uh, very bad bets it had made on derivatives. And the Fed was actually looking for a stronger financial institution to come in and acquire Banker's Trust and basically take the mess off the Fed's hands. And so the Fed learned that Deutsche Bank was in the market for a deal, and kind of brokers this agreement where Deutsche Bank in 1998, 1999 would spend $10 billion to buy Bankers Trust. And so that deal happened and almost overnight the bank was transformed. I mean, as you mentioned, the share of the bank's overall profits that came from Investment banking and sales and trading went up and I think more than tripled basically at the stroke of the pen and but it also more important really just completely changed the bank 's culture i mean the power had gone from being in Germany to now it is clear that since the overwhelming majority of the bank 's profits were coming from London and new york that 's where the power centers should be and so you know there there were kind of uh very there's some cosmetic changes that were, I think, pretty symbolic, like the bank's official language went from being German to English. But the more important ones were that the, the supervisory board of the bank, which was primarily uh, consisted of German industrialists and corporate chieftains and even labor leaders, was completely, it was, it was just neutered, essentially. And instead, the mandate became look we are going to step on the gas we want to be as big as we can as profitable as we can as quickly as we can and so the bank just underwent this really revolutionary change where they they had metrics That measured how profitable they were, how quickly. And that was, they were, they were using a metric called return on equity, which traditionally a bank's return on equity would be in the maybe high single digits, very, or very low double digits. And the newly appointed CEO in 2002, Joe Ackerman, who is himself a Credit Suisse veteran, came in and said that we want in the next two years for our return on equity to go to 25%. And you know, that was a huge – Deutsche Bank, at the time that he made that prediction, I think the return on equity was 4 or 5%. So he was basically calling in the period of two or three years for that to increase, what, 600%, I guess, which is, you know, extraordinary. And the crazy thing is they achieved it. And he, by the mid-2000s, Deutsche Bank had gone. It had become one of the most profitable places on the planet. And the – but, again, the decision – the way they achieved that was – it really wasn't that complicated. They started evaluating every transaction and every client they did based on its the return on equity. So if they were not going to be able to make a 25% profit on a loan or another transaction, they simply wouldn't do it. And if a client, like a German mid-sized business, for example, wasn't going – if that relationship wasn't going to generate that huge return – they would drop the client, and so yeah. the reality was that most of the business the bank had been doing in Germany was not all that profitable. In part because the German banking system has this huge glut of banks, so there's intense competition, which drives prices way down.
0: So let me let me circle back to something you said before we drift too far away. The supervision of the bank, what is it, the Valstad? I'm I I don't know how to pronounce the yeah divorce.
1: The well, there's the the Vorstand stand is the management board, and then there's the supervisory board, which is really supposed to be the oversight board.
0: So between those two entities and the Federal Reserve and the, um, uh, the various regulators in the U.K. and the regulators in Germany, how did Deutsche Bank manage to skirt regulations, to skirt risk management, to hide losses, to do all these things that... Bad banks have a tendency to do for years and years and years. This went on for almost two decades, didn't it?
1: Yeah, and you would think, given the number of regulators that were supposed to be overseeing the bank, you would think that it would have been very hard for them to do that. And the reality is the exact opposite, which is that there there was a patchwork of weak regulators all over the globe, and the bank very adeptly played those regulators off each other. So the result was that almost no one was actually doing substantive kind of hard-nosed oversight of them. And Boffin, which is the German bank regulator, was and was and is notorious for essentially playing defense on behalf of hometown companies. And so Boffin would essentially demand that any regulatory inquiries that came from the U.S. or the U.K., had to be routed through this labyrinth of German bureaucracy and and would, in some cases, just prevent the bank from complying with regulatory requests from outside of Germany. And the Fed, for its part, which was really supposed to be aggressively overseeing a large swath of the bank's U.S. business, and the Fed knew that there were really serious problems going on, whether it was, uh, you know, weak defenses against money laundering or just the, the the quality and integrity of the financial data the bank was producing. And over and over again, the Fed voiced these concerns to Deutsche Bank starting around 2002. And over and over again, the bank did nothing to actually address the Fed's concerns. And on a number of occasions, the Fed came in and punished the bank. But th- these were punishments that were... To describe them as light touch would be really like that would be exaggerating it. It's, you know, they were not even imposing any monetary penalties. They were not publicly uh, admonishing any executives. They were just very weak written orders. And the bank and executives I talked to said explicitly that the fact of the matter is they knew that the consequences for misbehaving were not really that severe. And so, and the benefits to misbehaving in some cases were very attractive. I mean, they they could make a lot of money providing services like money laundering or, you know, money transfer services to countries that were under U.S. sanctions. And it, it was a pretty easy decision for them.
0: Quite fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about Russia and Deutsche Bank and Trump. And I have to start with the question, how is it that Deutsche Bank was the only bank in the world that actually would lend money to Donald Trump. What's the background there? Well, the
1: background is that banks, as a general rule, don't like lending money to people or institutions that have a tendency of defaulting on their loans. And that is a pretty good description of exactly what Donald Trump was in the late 1990s and he had repeatedly defaulted or his companies had repeatedly defaulted on their debts and as a result of that mainstream financial institutions were very very wary about doing any any business with them because
0: wasn't Deutsche Bank considered a mainstream financial entity how different were they from J.P. Morgan or Bear Stearns
1: Well, in the U.S., they were very different. And this was the period where Deutsche Bank was trying to really establish a name for itself and make inroads in the U.S. It was more or less a non-entity at the time. And so the bank set out to try and build a business, in particular a business, of uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities. So basically making big real estate loans and then packaging those into bonds. And, you know, the key, the first key step to that is finding commercial real estate clients to lend to. And they, it was very hard for them to establish profitable relationships with kind of the big names in commercial real estate because they were already banked by much bigger banks like J.P. Morgan or Bear or City, and so they had to go kind of fishing for the scraps and. It, It just so happened that Trump at the time was in need of money himself. And so they paired up, and it was kind of a match made in heaven. You have this bank that's desperate for clients in the U.S., and you have this businessman who's desperate for a bank. And so starting in 1998, the bank made several hundred million dollars of loans to Trump in a very short period of time, and they're basically off to the races from there.
0: What's fascinating is Trump had a relationship with Deutsche Bank, and then he stiffed them on a loan— and came back to that same division and was soundly rejected, but somehow managed to talk a different division into making a new loan to him. could Could you so essentially one division paid off the loan to a separate division. Could you explain that?
1: Yeah, and this is actually not the first time this has happened at Deutschland. There are at least two other occasions where the bank one part of the bank made a loan or issued debt for Trump, and he defaulted. And he was off limits for that division and then comes back to another division of the bank and finds a way to do business with them. The most famous example of this is in 2008, he defaulted on a big loan to finance a Chicago skyscraper. And there's all sorts of litigation where Trump sues the bank. And eventually they reach a settlement that says Trump has to repay a certain portion of that loan in a couple of years. And so that brings you to 2011 or so. And Trump... Reach it, Trump through Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, uh, who had a relationship with a private banker at Deutsche Bank named Rosemary Vrablich. K- Kushner introduces his father-in-law to Rosemary Vrablich, who works in the private banking division, and it, basically Vrablich and her boss make a decision that even though the bank has been burned by Trump, even though he's off limits to the most of the bank, they are willing to take that risk. And start a new relationship with him, bring him on, bring him back on as a client. And so the bank makes a couple of loans to him starting in early 2012. One of them is to finance the acquisition and renovation of the Doral golf resort in Florida. But the other is, uh, I believe a $48 million loan to reap that's used primarily to repay what Trump still owed this different division of Deutsche Bank for the defaulted loan on the Chicago Tower. And that is, uh, I don't know. I've been covering banking and finance for almost 20 years now, and I've never seen anything like that. And I still talk to people in the banking world today who are just kind of, you know, their jaw just drops when they hear the story. It's not something that a normal bank with proper risk management and a good, cohesive internal culture would ever dream of doing, and for obvious reasons, right? It's embarrassing for the bank. It's a bad credit risk and the potential reputational damage of getting back in bed with this guy after he's already stiffed you multiple times, it just doesn't make much sense.
0: Right. Quite amazing. I I love the anecdote within the book about um, Trump's relationship with Bear Stearns. He was buddies with Bear's CEO, Ace Greenberg. And even though Ace and him are friends, Ace won't sign off on a loan. And the poor banker that has to call Trump to tell him that Ace said no has this brilliant way of letting him down. Uh, And he says to Trump, Ace loves you. The reason he doesn't want to do it is because he told me there are four guys in the world he doesn't want to be on the opposite side of the table from. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Henry Kravis, and you. How on earth could such a transparently butt-kissing ploy work on anybody? (laughs) It was... It really, it was perfect. It was perfectly
1: tailored to the client in this case. And, you know, I, I sometimes, as a skeptical, uh, cynical journalist, I roll my eyes when investment bankers, like, boast about their skills and how valuable they are. But I've got to tell you, when I heard this story relayed to me by, by the banker who pulled this off, I was just so impressed. It was a real – in addition to being hilarious, it's just – he knew his client. He understood the psychology of his client. And it managed it perfectly. Who
0: who knew the know your client rule could ever be applied in such a brilliant (laughs) way? Let's talk a little bit about Deutsche Bank. What sort of ties did Jeffrey Epstein, who even after he's been dead, still keeps popping up in the news? What sort of ties did Epstein have to the bank?
1: Well, Epstein's relationship with the bank is not as long as the bank's relationship with Trump, but in a lot of ways, it's much more egregious. And Epstein, starting around 2012, Epstein's longtime bank, J.P. Morgan, decided that it could not continue to do business with him. In part, because he'd been you know, publicly convicted of sex crimes and there were all these rumors flying around about continued stuff that he was doing, whether it was uh, being a predator or money laundering. And so they cut ties, J.P. Morgan cut ties with Epstein. And within months of that decision to cut ties with him, the banker at JP Morgan, who had managed the Epstein relationship, left JP Morgan and was hired by Deutsche Bank. And as far as I can tell, one of the first things he did upon walking in the doors at Deutsche Bank was to convince his superiors. That they should re- they should initiate a relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, and very quickly the bank brought Epstein on as a client and started not only lending him money but providing all sorts of kind of account management and cash management services to all these shell companies he was creating, and it, the relationship lasted up until. Almost last summer, basically, and just very shortly before Epstein was arrested and charged with operating a sex trafficking ring. And it, again, the really remarkable thing here is not so much that they, that the bank was willing to take risks on a client that other banks found unacceptable, because that is, you know, we just we already knew that about Deutsche Bank. What was really remarkable in this case is that a number of employees up and down the food chain at the bank raised really serious concerns about. This business, and there was there were concerns about doing business with a convicted criminal. There were concerns about all the rumors swirling around about his continued criminality, and there were concerns from anti-money laundering officers inside the bank that he was using the bank to launder money. And time after time, those concerns were voiced to executives up the food chain and discussed by executives at a pretty senior level within the bank. And the concerns were just tossed aside. They decided the risks were not so severe that it would justify ending a relationship that was turning out to be quite lucrative for the bank.
0: So let me push back on your earlier statement that Deutsche Bank's culture has changed. And I'm going to go someplace from the book that I wasn't planning on, but I now have to, based on what you just said, Deutsche Bank is the entity that effectively funded the construction of concentration camps at uh, under Hitler that they were essentially Hitler's banker. They fired all of the senior management who were Jewish. They confiscated a lot of Jewish assets. Deutsche Bank was a really bad actor during the period leading up to the war and during the war. So the question I have to ask is, how is this morally bankrupt, corrupt entity today any different than the bank that helped fund the Nazis?
1: Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a good question. As, and, and you're totally right, first of all, that Deutsche Bank was, as I say in the book, a party to genocide. I mean, it was a criminal enterprise. The U.S. wanted to dissolve Deutsche Bank after World War II because of its participation in war crimes. Its CEO was uh, tried and convicted of being a war criminal. And it, I mean, look, there is, I think, a danger in equating the crimes that took place uh, and the genocide that took place and the war crimes that took place with the crimes that Deutsche Bank has, co- has committed in the past 20 years. And these, the crimes in, uh, in the Holocaust were just, I think, unique and, uh, just uniquely awful. And it, I'm not sure anything they've done today really composed to that, but I also think that that was, and I'm not at all trying to defend the bank's conduct during that period, because it's indefensible, but That was an extraordinary moment in corporate Germany, and there were a lot. In fact, most of the big German companies uh, at the time participated one way or another in genocide. And whether it was chemical companies manufacturing poison gas, or banks helping, uh, you know, finance the Nazi war effort, and a lot of those companies and or auto manufacturers making cars or tanks or things like that, and a lot of those companies still exist today. and you know, so I'm not sure it's, and I'm kind of struggling with this answer because I don't want to at all sound like I'm justifying or defending the bank's actions during that period. Uh, but look, they came out of World War II and they did change and they played, as I said earlier, a leading role in the reconstruction and redevelopment of Europe. They admitted their crimes and apologized for their crimes during the Holocaust, which does not make it right, but it at least is, you know, a small step toward making it right. And reparations, if memory serves, also,
0: right? Didn't they write some big checks? Yeah, they did.
1: And they, you know, like much of Germany... They, I mean, they've they spent the better part of the past century apologizing and trying to make right the awful crimes that they committed.
0: All right. Fair, fair enough. Let, let's go from Jeffrey Epstein to genocide to something a little lighter. Let's talk about Russian money laundering and Deutsche Bank's role. Tell us about the paired trade situation that uh, Deutsche Bank came up with that allowed Russian oligarchs to move rubles into dollars pretty seamlessly
1: yeah well just even before we explain that and i think it's worth noting that deutsche bank for basically ever for most of its existence has been making a lot of money by providing banking services in russia that most of the rest of the world for one reason or another did not see did not see as a particularly good idea and so this, you know they initially were financing railroads for the czar and that shifted to serving uh, the communist government there basically nonstop, uh, with the brief exception of World War II. And, it, um, and then starting in the early 2000s, as this new class of oligarchs emerged, Deutsche Bank was one of the only Western banks operating in Russia. And basically assisting these Kremlin-linked oligarchs in moving their money out of out of uh, Eastern Europe and into the Western financial system, whether that was into uh, the eurozone or into the U.S. financial system. And so, so starting describe, in- describe in-
0: those mirror trade, describe those mirror yeah. trades because it's a fascinating methodology, and it's kind of shocking. No, none of the regulators picked it up very quickly.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think the simplest way to describe these trades is that they're called mirror trades because they're two trades that take place basically simultaneously that are reverse images of each other. So uh, in Russia, you would have an oligarch, and the result of those trades is that money goes from being in rubles to being in most likely euros. And so in one example, a Russian will basically purchase a bunch of blue-chip shares of a company using rubles to acquire the shares. And then in a a separate transaction that takes place simultaneously with the same amount, a shell company headquartered in maybe a place like Cyprus, which is part of the Eurozone but very lightly regulated, will sell the the same number of shares that were just bought by the Russian. And the result is that the Russian has spent his rubles buying shares, and the Russian who controls the shell company has also liquidated those shares in Cyprus and raised the same amount of money in euros. And so just like that, with the help of Deutsche Bank moving the money back and forth between the Russian and these shell companies, the just like that, you've got ruble you once had rubles, they're now euros and your money is in the, the European financial system. So it's fairly I mean it's much more complicated than I just said, but it, the nuts and bolts of it are actually pretty simple and Uh, kind of almost elegant in their simplicity, I think. And, again, a normal bank with proper checks and balances and internal controls and good computer systems would have spotted this pretty quickly because they would have seen that there are these two simultaneous transactions, often quite large transactions, taking place instantly at at the exact same time in the exact same amount and involving these shell companies linked to Russians And, you know, that would raise a lot of red flags at a normal, healthy financial institution. Deutsche Bank was not a normal, healthy financial. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. Consultation.
0: So so let's talk a little bit about your writing process in the book. I mean, we could talk more about oligarchs and, and uh, bad actor states and, and how Deutsche Bank um, laundered money for them, but I think people get the sense we all would have been better off if Deutsche Bank would have been given a corporate death penalty after World War II. That was a mistake, and, and I don't want to dwell on that. Let's talk instead about your writing about the book. There's an incredible amount of detail and character development in the book, um, including uh, some of my the, the most interesting people um, within the book are really fleshed out. How did you go about writing this, and how much research did you put into figuring out who this huge cast of characters were and how they all interacted with each other? It's quite a giant puzzle.
1: Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is I just read a lot, and I read, I think, I did my best to read every single thing that had been written about Deutsche Bank from the mid-1980s to the present day, and so that was in extraordinary amount of background research not just in the media but in academic papers in uh, government documents in lawsuits things like that and it, and then I just set out to meet as many people as I could who had been involved or worked for the bank and that ranged from people and then I started with people who had been at a pretty high level inside the bank and it you know, almost none of those people are still working there. And one of the extraordinary things about Deutsche Bank, more than any other bank I've ever encountered in my career, is that almost everyone who leaves Deutsche Bank does so with a very bitter taste in their mouth. And so a lot mm-hmm. of those people were willing to talk to me based on the basically because they could, they knew that everyone else would have their knives out and they wanted to kind of protect themselves and tell their side of the story uh, preemptively. And so for a journalist, that is just a very nice phenomenon to be experiencing because everyone is eager to tell their side of the story because they assume everyone else is going to be talking. And so <laughs> and there was, you know, and you just sit down with these people over drinks or dinner or breakfast and it, you, you know, you just ask them to tell you stories. And the stories were extraordinary. And a lot of these people, these are very smart people, even though a lot of them made very serious mistakes and they have good memories, and a lot of them have documents that they, contemporaneous documents that they've kept. And so yeah, and I spent, I don't know, many, many, many hours interviewing and spending time with in scores of these people.
0: So let's talk about probably the only decent character in the whole book, Bill Brocksmith, am I pronouncing his last name right?
1: Brocksmith, yeah.
0: Brokesmith. So. He is the person who essentially invented the form of derivatives and derivative trading that Deutsche Bank built all its initial wealth on, and he understood risk management better than anybody else in the bank, and even after he leaves the bank, he stays on as a consultant and continues to internalize all of the bad behavior and feels guilt for everything that he's not doing, others are doing and profiting on, and ultimately commits suicide for the sins of others. How was it researching him? And tell us about his son, Val, how much he helped in the entire process. You you wrote a big piece on Val at the New York Times, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And Val, I mean, Val was indispensable uh, to telling his father's story, and and, and he was extremely helpful in it introducing me, or, or not really introducing, but pointing me towards a lot of the people his dad had worked with, and shortly after his father's death in 2014, Val gained access to his father's personal email accounts, which, for a variety of reasons, Bill Brooksman had been using for a lot of his Deutsche Bank work, and so, and Val shared, uh, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of those emails and documents from those Gmail and Yahoo accounts with me, and so that provides, and that's another way, by the way, that I was able to recreate some dialogue, and, uh, and it was just, you know, it was vital. Um, Val is a complicated person, as are we all, and, um, you know, it's been a difficult relationship with him over the years, but, and he, he was very eager to, I think, as you like to say, cultivate his father's legacy. And... And it was a legacy worth cultivating. And Bill, as you said, was kind of a legendary risk manager and legendary derivatives expert. I think more important than either of those things, though, is that he was a man who had a conscience and had a sense of ethics and was not afraid to stick with those and really stand up for them when challenged by colleagues. And Deutsche Bank was very short on people with strong ethical and moral compasses, and Brokesmith stood out as, you know, he was the conscience of the bank in a lot of ways. That's the way a lot of his colleagues described him to me as. Yeah. And it, as, you, as you said, he internalized a lot of the bank's problems, and so it ends up being kind of a tragedy in a lot of ways. Um,
0: Very much so. And so that, I, I, yeah. I, I look, I'm up to the part in the book where, so Val is the adopted stepson um, "Bill leaves seven suicide notes for various people, including uh, one for Val, who's kind of been a near-doel, a little bit of a junkie and a musician. But he finds a new purpose in life trying to clear his father's name. And through an organization, Guardians of Peace, he learns how to become a hacker a little bit, set up pa- Wi-Fi packet sniffing, and literally drives from California to New York, in order to to set up a a packet-sniffing sting to get his stepmom's email passwords. They're they're somewhat estranged. He's on a a $2,500-a-month allowance but never inherited any real uh, money after his father died. Tell us what Val discovers in his mother's email account.
1: Well, there are two kind of main categories of things, and one is that he discovers all of these documents that pertain to Deutsche Bank's efforts to essentially cover up some of the reasons that uh, Bill Brokesmith had committed suicide, and and he finds that there is a bank, the bank had conducted this kind of very uh, slipshod internal review of the circumstances of his death and some other stuff as well. and then, secondly, he finds all these suicide notes, and you know, all but I think two of them are to family members. One is to a family friend, and but the final one is to the bank CEO at the time, Ansu Chain. And it lays out in just heartbreaking detail uh, what Bill Brokesmith blamed himself for. And I don't, I won't spoil that for everyone, but there's, um, it, it really, it's, it's to me, it's really heartbreaking it's also a testament to val having (laughs) worked really hard to unearth this stuff without really knowing what the payoff was going to be and i and you know motivated by this stew of really complicated personal emotional familial uh factors that are you know any of us can probably kind of imagine and uh and you know val as you said it has this terrible falling out with his family frankly had a terrible falling out with me too and You know, I think it is just a reminder that whistleblowers take many different take many different forms, and Val is not a conventional whistleblower, but the service that he has provided to the public by exposing all this Deutsche Bank stuff, I think is really undeniable and laudable.
0: Yeah, no doubt about that. You know, I'm reminded of what he discovers in his stepdad's suicide note to him, essentially saying hey, you're the only one worthy of carrying on the Brock Smith name, and, I, and I'm proud of, of you as my son. I, I wonder if that just allayed Val's worst fears and, and gave him some motivation to do all the things he did. A lot of what we now know about Deutsche Bank and how they hid giant losses during 08-09 and how they lied to regulators – None of that would have come out the Fed, the Federal Reserve letter uh, warning that they were in in yep. trouble. None of that would have come out without Val Brocksmith. Is that is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah, I think, and there is a tremendous amount that would. In fairness, there were a lot of other whistleblowers too who have been like really helpful to me and to other journalists and to regulators over the years. So I don't want to give Val all the credit for that, but there's no look. Val has been our ability to understand Deutsche Bank's very ugly inner workings is, you know, in large part due to Val's efforts to get the stuff in the public domain. And, you know, everyone can question Val's character and his motives and things like that. And I frankly have from time to time myself. And, but again, there's really no denying the public service that he has provided.
0: So you mentioned you had a falling out with him. Um, Tell us, what you can about it? What happens? Uh, is he happy with the book? Is he unhappy? He doesn't come across as a bad guy. He comes across as kind of a, you know, a, a person having a hard time finding his place in the world and and a little bit of a, a junkie. But he does yep. perform a service. What what is going on with him? Um, and how does he feel about the book? Um, I think
1: he. I mean I'm I'm a little wary of putting words in his mouth. But I my understanding is that he is very he, he thinks the book accurately portrays his father's life and work, which is look, from my perspective, that is something that I feel really good about. I think he has had a lot of trouble uh reading my descriptions of him. And I think he is you know, Val has been I got. I started getting to know Val just a few days after his father's death, and uh, so I've been with him on this journey from early 2014 until now. And it, I, you know, it's not like I know him that well, but I, I know him pretty well. I was talking to him every day, multiple times a day, for the better part of four years and or five years. And it, look, it's painful. I think to read difficult things about yourself in the New York times or in a book. And there are difficult things about him in the book. Like he's a complicated, flawed person as are we all, but he, I mean, he, as you said, he struggled with some emotional issues, some substance abuse issues. And I think it's hard for anyone to read those things. So we've had, I mean, me, it would be a, an understatement for me to describe Ballas being angry with me. He is like furious with me. Uh, I think he would love to destroy me probably. Uh, and it, it would just very, uh, you know, that's not a good feeling for me to have. Uh, and it's, I guess, kind of just like a, an occupational hazard as a journalist, when you get to know a source as well as this and, uh, it take the relationship can take on tones of a friendship when in reality it's not a friendship right he's a source and the subject of what i'm writing about and i'm a journalist and uh but i think it is very look i I've, I've learned a lot about myself and about like my own trade craft in over the years working with val and i've certainly made some mistakes along the way and uh so i, I don't want to make it sound like i don't know there's the, i'm struggling a little bit here again because i, I don't I, want to work get that that's
0: them. Yeah. right that's challenging but there's no avoiding that based on the book what he found the document trove the emails the all of the things he found completely changes not just the picture of deutsche bank but it paints really a, a full portrait of the depth of depravity that was going on at the bank um, during those years. And if nothing else, I hope he's pleased that he helped you get to a deep, dark, ugly truth about what was once one of the biggest banks in the world.
1: Well, I I feel similarly, and uh, hopefully he'll listen to this and, you know, <laughs> Be pleased to hear that that's your reading of the story as
0: well. Well, well, it's a fascinating story and really well told. Um, I, before we get to our favorite questions, I just have to talk a little bit about your previous book, which is somewhat similar in its scope of dealing with finance characters and illegality and criminality. Um, and that was the Spider Network, all about the LIBOR manipulation. Uh, and that predates um, your contact with Val by by a year. You were contacted by a, a currency trader named Tom Hayes in 2013, who really was a savant when it came to this and kind of took the blame for what a lot of other people did. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with yet another damaged person in the world of finance, Tom Hayes. How did, how did that come about?
1: Well, I I got to know Tom Hayes starting in, uh, I guess early 2013. So this is about a year before I started my relationship with Val. And Hayes was, had been for many years a very successful interest rate trader at a succession of big banks and was criminally charged in the U.S. and arrested in the U.K. at the end of 2012 for being the alleged mastermind of the big, the LIBOR manipulation scandal. And I tried to get in touch with Tom very shortly after he was arrested. And, you know, I'm sure I was among many journalists trying to do that. And I ultimately found a way in through a friend of his and a business school classmate of his who I spent some time with. And she eventually introduced me, or I guess she actually gave Tom my cell phone number in uh, early 2013. And I was, didn't really expect to hear from him, but one night I was, you know, sitting on the sofa in my apartment in London and got a text from an unknown number that said, I'm willing to meet with you, but I need to be sure I can trust you. This goes much, much higher than anyone realizes, even the Department of Justice. And so that was the start of a secret years long relationship I had with Hayes that I eventually he agreed to make it public. Um after his trial in 2015. Um, so, I mean, that was, Hayes is mildly autistic. He's got Asperger's and he is someone who has, it was just like a fascinating relationship for me because he is, uh, he's a genius. Um, but he's also in some ways just completely inept and have really struggled. He, he doesn't, I shouldn't even say inept. He's, he is, uh, you know, he doesn't communicate like people normally do in my, in my uh, experience dealing with people on Wall Street. And right. um,
0: He's on the spectrum. He has problems reading social cues. He has problems understanding exactly. when people are lying to him. Easy to set up a guy like that to be the fall guy. I assume by now he's out of prison. What, what's he doing with his life these days? No,
1: he's still. I mean, he has gone from being in a maximum security prison to being in what's uh, essentially an open prison, so he can is uh, some rights to be able to like, go out into um, like society and have a have a job, but he still has to go back to prison at night. And um, hmm. so he, I mean. He, He is by far the person who has, you know, taken the most painful personal consequences of, I think, anyone in the banking industry since the financial crisis. Um, And he is just about the least likely person you would think to have that role. And, again, he is, you know, he's someone who I think had trouble detecting some shades of gray and didn't see that LIBOR manipulation was outright illegal, and it was kind of incentivized and encouraged by his superiors and his colleagues to do this. And it did. It. And it, Which is not to say he's without blame. I mean, he certainly, like, deserved blame. I think he, in his heart of hearts, knew what he was doing and was not quite right. Uh, but the notion that this is the man who, you know, he received initially a 14-year prison sentence.
0: Um, right. And... You know, that None of his supervisors, everybody else who was making the same no trades one or managing, nobody, forget going to prison, no one even really got into any trouble.
1: Yeah, I mean, a few people lost their jobs, but as is often the case in the finance industry where institutional memories are very short, a lot of the people got rehired and reentered the workforce. And, you know, there have been since then, So he he was tried and convicted in 2015, and over the past five years, there have been a... A, a smattering of other uh, traders who have been um, convicted and/or served some time in jail, and uh, but none with sentences of anything like the magnitude of what Hayes got. And um, and, I, and I think since I wrote that book, the public perspective, especially in the UK, which is where a lot of this took place, has really shifted toward initially viewing Hayes as this evil mastermind, which is the case the government made about him, to uh, viewing him at this point largely as a scapegoat, who while, yes, he did some things wrong, has become the, the, the single, the sole person who is paying a price for an entire institution, for an entire industry's greed and malfeasance, which obviously so, is not fair.
0: So so between the research and writing of the two books, between Dark Towers and the Spider Network, what surprised you that was parallel between uh, these two areas of wanton criminality, and what just surprised you in general as you were doing your research?
1: Well, I mean, what surprised me most in the research process for both books was, and I'm not sure this is the answer you're looking for, but I mean, it really it was almost a it was just a fascinating journey for me getting to know what, these two people in these two books. So, in the one hand, Hayes who is unlike any person I've ever met in my life, and then Val Brokesmith in the second book, who, you know, is also unlike anyone I've ever met in my life. And those are certainly, I and mean, without any question or competition, the longest-running and most intense and, you know, stressful source relationships I've ever had. Um, in fact, they're probably two of the most intense, stressful relationships I've ever had, period. Um, and yeah, Quite interesting. And... And you know, you learn a lot about yourself when you're when you're spending years interacting with complicated people and trying to figure out how to relate to them and communicate effectively with them, and, and trying to understand the world through their eyes. I think it's one of the things I love most about journalism and kind of st- this type of storytelling is that it expands. It's for me, anyway, it's kind of expanded my way of thinking about the range of emotions that people have. It's really helped me, I think, be, or learn a lot more about empathy. And um, so it's been, from just a personal standpoint, really fascinating and I think positive.
0: Let me ask you a quick question here that is forward-looking. You've covered some of the malfeasance around the CARES Act. You wrote a story about hospitals getting bailouts executives taking big bonuses and then laying off people, even though they're not supposed to. What do you think the book about the CARES Act malfeasance is going to be five years from now? Is is Has some of the criminality around the government bailout risen to the same levels as LIBOR and Deutsche Bank? Or is this really just your run-of-the-mill malfeasance?
1: Well, I mean, the short answer is I don't know. Um, the longer answer is that based on what I've seen at this point with the CARES Act, it's less about malfeasance and or criminality and much more about sloppiness and with like a side helping of greed. I and mean, there's the, bail- the CARES Act in general was obviously rushed through uh, Congress and has been implemented in this really hasty way. I mean, like, Which sounds bad, except when you think about the context, which is that the Trump administration was understandably very desperate to get this money out into the economy as quickly as possible. And I, I think there's a decision sure. made that they were willing to take some heat for you know, some recipients getting money that they really didn't deserve, some recipients using that money in inappropriate ways, for the sake of broadly getting trillions of dollars into the economy very quickly. And so I, I think that journalists... And I think the media plays a very important role in accountability here in terms of writing about misuses of money or fraud and things like that, but I, I also think it's important not to let those examples of wrongdoing or uh, sloppiness or ineptitude corrode all faith in this program or to really question the effectiveness or utility of this program overall, because they I mean, God, imagine the shape the economy would be in right now if those trillions of dollars were not being put into the economy. Right. And Don't, don't so, let the
0: tail wag the dog, in other words. Yeah,
1: but on the other hand, this story is not fully told. The reporting will become much clearer as time passes. And, you know, it's entirely possible there is some serious criminality and malfeasance going on in a broad way that we, or at least I, am not currently aware of. And if that's the case, man, what a story that will be.
0: Yeah, to say the least. All right, let's jump to our speed round. These are our favorite questions we ask all our guests, and and this is the part of the conversation that we're going to keep it fast and short. And let's start with, what are you streaming these days? Give us your favorite Netflix, Amazon uh, shows or podcasts you're listening to.
1: I listen to The Daily, which is a New York Times podcast just about every day. I just listened to Wind of Change, which is fantastic. Uh, Netflix, uh, the best thing, the best show I've watched in a long time is Ozark, which I love.
0: Tell us about your mentors who helped guide your career in journalism.
1: And going back to college, I had a great professor, Jack Pitney, who really taught me more than anyone else about writing well and keeping things in the active voice, not using ad firms uh keeping sentences short and sweet uh in journalism the and i think the best mentor i've had is bruce orwall who's a legendary uh reporter and editor at the wall street journal who coached me through my relationship with tom hayes and to some extent val Brooksmith as well and he's now the global sports editor at the journal and he's just he's an extraordinary person and journalist and he's been a mentor to uh, dozens and dozens of really good journalists over the years.
0: Fascinating. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What are you reading now? And and what are some of your all-time favorites?
1: Um, I am right now reading Straight Man, which is a novel. Um, and God, I cannot remember who it's by. Uh the but it's fantastic. It's not new. Um I recently uh, read Hidden Valley Road, which I think everyone's probably reading, which is also fantastic. But um, I think right now my favorite all-time book is uh, a little more obscure. It's called Or I'll Dress You in Mourning. And mourning as in, like, grieving, not morning as in the time of day. Uh, morning and it's nonfiction. The yeah, morning with a U. And it was written, I believe, in the late 60s uh, by a pair of journalists uh and it's about bullfighting in spain and it is lyrical and fascinating it's just a wonderful wonderful book
0: and what sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is thinking about a career in either journalism or long-form investigative journalism
1: i think the i mean there's so much advice i could give Uh, to me the advice that I wish I had gotten when I was just starting, is start, you want to be as aggressive and fast moving and ambitious as you can be, but make sure that you're finding a place to start working where you have a good editor and you have a good mentor, and where when you make mistakes and when you fail, you're not going to do so in such a spectacular way that it jeopardizes your entire career. And because you will make mistakes and you will fail, and you want to do that in kind of a contained safe environment cool.
0: and then a related question, I guess is what do you know about the world of uh, journalism today that you wish you knew when you were first getting starting out?
1: yeah, I mean that's that everyone makes mistakes, and that those mistakes can be really grave if they're not done in a you know you, you know you don't want to be like start rock climbing without ropes and uh It's the same with journalism. Like you need to respect what you don't know and respect what you can learn from others. And so, I think there's a temptation. I know I certainly face this myself, where you kind of just you think you know everything when you're 22 years old, and you want to go off and just prove yourself, and you think you can do it. And the reality is, maybe you can do it, but you you will do it so much better and in a much more productive way if you're doing it with someone who's going to make you better and so that often means uh not just going for the gold and everything you need to kind of check your ambitions a little bit and find an organization and individuals you can work with that will really that you will learn a lot from
0: thanks david for being so generous with your time if you enjoy this conversation check out all our previous such interviews uh we have over 300 recorded over the past six years You can find them at iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at Podcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Be sure and give the show a review at Apple iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put this conversation together each week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.